we have come to the end of 1 John through these five weeks. We'll be there tonight in 1 John chapter 5. We'll be reading the whole chapter. Our focus will be on verses 6 to the end of the chapter. And as I read this, I mean, technically we're always supposed to pay attention (laughs) to God's word. And that is certainly the case here, but as I'm reading this, there are some very interesting questions that arise. There are some things that we may not be that familiar with. So try to, as always, to pay attention to the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is, it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thus ends the reading of God's word. I'm sure we have all asked this question of ourselves. How do you know? How do I know something about myself? How do I know if I like my job? How do I know if I'm happy with my life? How do I know I love someone? 
It's kind of interesting because some of these questions you'd think would be really easy to answer. How do you know if you love your job? Well, do you like it? How do you know if you love someone? Well, do you love someone? Well, we know from our experience that's not always the case. In fact, some of the things that mean the most to us are actually the hardest for us to see what we actually believe and think on. One of the most common questions for dating couples is, do I love this person? And it's not always the easiest thing to figure out. We're faced with the same dilemma, and believers throughout all ages have been as well. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know that I believe? How do I know that I'm a true Christian? We all struggle with this at certain times in our life. Sometimes we have assurance, sometimes we don't. But we want to know. How can I be assured of my salvation? And that's what our passage tonight is doing. We now have gone through the whole epistle, and we have seen how John keeps circling back to assurance. This is what he wants to leave the people with, assurance that they have eternal life. And this is his final attempt to do that. In verses 1 through 5, we saw the repeated themes that we're familiar with, that believers must believe that Jesus is the Christ, that we must love our brothers, that we must obey his commands, We also see that the pathway to victory over sin in the world is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. That he is who he claimed to be. That he is God's son come in the flesh to be our savior. Well, if that's where our faith hinges upon, we need to know that we're believing in something that's true. We need to know that we're exercising faith in in a man who is what he claimed to be. And so, then, we would have assurance. So John's asking and answering the question, how can we be assured? And he does four points to answer this. Because of the testimony of three witnesses, because of the confidence we have in prayer, because of our attitude towards sin, because of our awareness of God. We'll go through each of those. So first, how can we be assured? Because of the testimony of three witnesses. We need to know that Jesus is who he claimed. That we believe someone who is genuine. And so he gives us these three witnesses that, when you read, sound somewhat odd. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Well, we all know the spirit. Okay, that's the Holy Spirit. That makes sense. But what is this water and the blood here? And we have to proceed with caution Because though John's original audience would have known exactly what he meant by this, we're a little unsure. There is is some disagreement. There are a few options that this could be. Some think this is a reference to the sacraments. The water being baptism, the blood being the Lord's Supper. Some think this is referring to Jesus' birth and his death. Or just merely his incarnation. Others say this is a reference to John 19.34 where the soldier put the spear in Jesus' side and water and blood came out. Many see a reference to Jesus' baptism and crucifixion. So with all of these options, what is it? Well, verse 6 makes it plain that the water and blood refer to Jesus' life in some way. And they refer to Jesus' life as a witness. They're testifying. 
And so I think the safest options is that this is referring to Jesus' baptism and his death, his crucifixion. Because these events truly testified and witnessed to who Jesus was, to the proof of his being our Christ, our Messiah, our our Savior. It is likely that John is rejecting an ancient heresy here. There were those that believed Jesus was a normal man, but that the divine spirit of Christ came on this human man, this human Jesus, at baptism. So he was, he was adopted to be this person on earth by the Spirit of Christ, but the Spirit left him during the time of his crucifixion. And they would say, this is why Jesus could say, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And John is telling us, no. This is not the case. And this is probably why he says in verse 6, he did not come by water only, but by water and blood. See, they would have, these opponents of his, these false teachers, would have accepted that Jesus came in in water, that this Jesus man was adopted at at his baptism. We accept his baptism, but not his crucifixion. And John's saying, no, Jesus was God's son from the beginning to the end. He wasn't this man who was adopted. From the minute he was conceived in Mary, he was God's son. There was never a time where he was not. And so he's rejecting this false heresy. But then we have to ask the question, okay, so if this is John's, I mean, Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion, how does that bear witness to him? Well, it was at his baptism where where the voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. That's a really strong witness to the truth of who Jesus was. God himself confirmed it at his baptism. It was also at his baptism where the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And he was equipped. He was equipped with the Spirit, and he went out and started his earthly ministry right after his baptism. His baptism signaled his earthly ministry, his service as our Savior in Christ. And so we can see how this would bear witness and testify that Jesus was who he claimed to be. What about the blood? How does Jesus' death and crucifixion show us and testify to his claim? Well, everything leading up and occurring at the cross bears witness that Jesus was God's son, sent as this atoning sacrifice. Because it was the fulfillment of many prophecies, many allusions in the Old Testament pointing to this one who would come and suffer and die. You could think of the suffering servant of Isaiah. You could even think in the Garden of Eden, where we would have the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would strike his heel. We see that this is all pointing to this one who would come and ultimately die. So Jesus is doing that on the cross and this bears witness to him. We also see it in the darkness that reigned over the land when he was being crucified. This showed that he was being judged by God for our sins. That it was divine judgment taking place, meaning he must have been the Christ, the one who is to come. Perhaps the clearest way of seeing it is in two things that happened. In in the temple curtain being torn, which showed that satisfaction had been made, that no longer was the ceremonial law in effect. Jesus had washed the people. They were cleansed. And then you have the second thing, what the centurion who crucified him said, 
truly this was the Son of God. So we can see how these two events really show that Jesus was our Savior. Remember, John is talking and telling his audience who are people near eyewitnesses. They either lived during the time of these events themselves or lived during the time where they spoke to people who did see them. What strong witness is that? John's telling his audience, these are the things you know happened. They're recent memory. Now to us, 2,000 years later, sometimes we can think, well, that's not that great of testimony because it's 2,000 years ago. How can we know that? Well, we can know it because we have the exact same testimony that John's eyewitness generation had, that they accepted. We have the same one. And that's a reliable witness. And then third, what's the third testimony? What's the third witness we have? And that's the Holy Spirit. So we have water and blood and now the Holy Spirit. Well, without him, without the Holy Spirit, the water and the blood would be meaningless to us because it is the Holy Spirit who applies it to our lives. John has already pointed to the Spirit as our assurance, but the Spirit himself is a witness to the truth of Jesus' identity because he descended on him at his baptism and even now proceeds from him to us. The very fact that we have the Spirit means that Jesus was who he said he was. Because he was able to send the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son to us. And so by these three witnesses, by water and blood and the Holy Spirit, we know that Jesus was the Christ. He was who he claimed to be. And verse 8 shows that this testimony is completely consistent. They're all in agreement. There's no doubt in, between, in them. And then John says in verse 9, he makes the argument that if we accept man's testimony, which we do, we do that all the time. Virtually everything we know about history comes from testimony of other men. And we accept that. We accept that as truth. Even our courts, we accept the testimony of men. And John's saying, if we accept that, why would we not accept the testimony of God concerning his own son? That's what John's saying here, that we must accept that. And this testimony amounts to what he says in verse 11. What do these three testify to and bear witness to? God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So how does this answer the question, how can we be assured? Because God himself has shown through Christ's baptism, death, and Holy Spirit that it's Jesus who possesses eternal life. Jesus has these, and we are in him. And so if he's truly the possessor of this and we're in him, we must also have eternal life. And that's the first assurance he gives. The second is in verses 14 through 17. How can you be assured? Because of the confidence we have in prayer. It may seem strange for John to go into prayer here. Why is he talking about prayer? He just said in verse 13, I write to you so that you know that you will have eternal life. And then all of a sudden he goes into prayer. Well, this actually makes a lot of sense. If we don't believe or know that God hears our prayers, how can we have assurance? Even the prayer to be saved. That God would forgive us of our sins. If we don't have assurance that God hears that, 
we don't have assurance that we have eternal life. And John's telling us we do have assurance. We do know that we are, belong to Christ, that we are his, his own bride. We are God's adopted children. And our prayer life is essential to this. He says in verse 14, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Do you realize that when you approach God in prayer, you have full access? And you're valued. You're valued as a loved one. You come united to Christ. We talked about that this morning, union with Christ. You come with the Spirit indwelling in you. And so we know that God hears us. We have assurance in that. When you think about it in this way, why would we doubt it? Why would we doubt that he hears and answers our prayers? In fact, we have this confidence that he will hear every request we make. Now, this verse has been abused by many who proclaim a health and wealth gospel. Those who say that, well, you can ask anything of God and he has to give it to you. This verse says that. Well, this, no, that's not what's going on here. We know from our own experience that this doesn't happen. We pray all the time for things we don't get. We pray that cancer would be removed, and often it's not. We pray that we will receive blessings in one area or that something would be taken away, and it's not. We even see in God's word, Paul prayed that the thorn in his flesh would be removed, and it wasn't. And then we even see Jesus, who prayed that the cup would pass from him, and it didn't. John's not saying that anything we ask, God will, will grant. It's actually Jesus who is the best example because he ended his prayers with, not my will, but yours be done. And we need to realize that just because we didn't receive exactly what we wanted does not mean that God didn't hear our prayer or answer it. God may not have removed the cancer the way we want it, but he dealt with the cancer the way he wanted. That's what he does. You might pray that God would take away your anxiety and yet you still battle it. Perhaps that's because God's answer is to give you victory over anxiety through the struggle, through the fight, and not just to remove it, not just to take it away. This is what God's will is in prayer. Prayers are not a means of changing God's will. It's not a way we manipulate God. Prayer is a means of bringing God's will to pass. Now, what do I mean by that? It's very common for us to really have a high view of God's sovereignty and his power to think, what's the purpose of prayer? I mean, he's going to do what he's going to do anyways. Why pray about it? Well, it's because in God's divine plan, he has, he has ordained it that what we ask would be in his will and he would answer it. You see, prayers do matter. God answers them because he has elected from eternity past to do the things he would providentially guide us to pray for. So when you pray, it's according to God's plan, it's according to his will, and he carries it out in answer to your prayer. So your prayers do matter, though God is sovereign. This is the wonder that prayer is. Prayer is the way our wills become daily conformed to God's will and his desires. 
And whatever you ask according to his will, God will grant. So what does that mean for assurance? Well, it means if you ask to be forgiven of your sins, if you believe in Christ and ask for faith in him, God will answer that. Yeah, there are some things that we don't know exactly what God's will is. We see that with what Paul prayed. We see that with what Jesus prayed. We don't always know exactly what God's will is. But we know in this case, God will never reject a prayer for forgiveness if it is heartfelt. We have total assurance in that because it's according to his will. That's the assurance that we have. But this might raise the question... All right, so God hears our prayers, but what about our prayers for others? And this is where we get into the difficult verses of 16 and 17. The first half of 16 is dealing with what a believer does when he sees his brother committing a sin, an open sin. And it's described as committing a sin that does not lead to death. So when we see this brother doing something that does not lead to death, the answer is that we should pray and God will give him life. John is saying here that when you see a brother committing an open sin, pray for that brother and God will be with him. We know that when we pray for fellow believers, God hears that. The brother will not fall away. The brother will be forgiven, see the error of his ways. He will grow in faith. He will persevere. We have that assurance. God will not reject his own nor the prayers for his own. Well, then what do we do with this this other thing? John says, this is not the case for the one who is committing sin leading to death. Well, what's that? Now again, this is also a difficult challenge. These two issues in these verses, I don't want to call them issues, but these interpretive questions are some of the hardest ones that that are in the New Testament. We don't exactly know what John is referring to here. We can make educated guesses. We can have, we can have confidence that we get the general truth of what he's saying, but exactly what he's referring to is somewhat difficult. I think the safest explanation, though, is that sins not leading to death are the sins believers commit. It doesn't ultimately lead to spiritual death. It's a sin, it's wrong, but it won't spiritually kill you. That means that while that sins that lead to death are the sins which lead those to disown the Christian faith. Denying the reality of Jesus Christ, denying that he was fully God and fully man. And remember, that's what these false teachers have been saying. And also continuous unrepentant sin. That seems to be what John is referring to as these sins that lead to death. This means then that we have assurance to pray for our brothers and sisters. And John's goal is for the congregation to pray for them. And he will give them, and God will give them life. That's what this verse is saying. However, there is no such assurance for those who commit those things that lead to spiritual death. We don't have that assurance. We can pray for them. We should pray for them. We should pray for the lost. John's not saying that. But we have complete and utter assurance that God will answer our prayers, especially to those we direct towards believers. So the question is, do we do that? Do we pray that way? When you see a brother or sister committing a sin, what's your reaction? Is your reaction, they should know better than that. 
I can't believe it. I can't believe what I saw him just do. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. And then what's probably our second reaction? To go to everyone else and say, did you see here that so-and-so did this? And we start gossiping about them. Often our first reaction isn't to pray for them. It's to look down on them and say, that's, that's crazy. But John's actually telling us here, if we pray for our brothers, we have assurance that God will answer it and he will give them life. So we should pray for them immediately. And God will answer that. God will be with them. And this is what we are called to do and it gives us assurance because we have confidence that God will not only hear our prayers concerning ourselves, our prayers for forgiveness and salvation, but also the prayers of each other, for each other. And so that's our second way of assurance, the confidence we have in prayer. Third, how are you assured because of our new attitude towards sin? That's in verses 18 and 19. In verse 18, John says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. That's just, that's just a statement. It's just a fact. Anyone born of God does not continue to sin. But how do we reconcile this? John has repeatedly said throughout his epistle, Christians are going to sin. And if you claim that you're not a sinner, that just makes you a liar. What's John meaning here? Well, I heard a good illustration of this from a pastor who I actually got a lot of the information for this sermon from. And he uses the illustration of pigs, sheep, and mud. If you think of pigs as unbelievers, sheep as believers, and mud as sin, that's the the imagery here. So think of these farm animals. Pigs roll around in mud. They love it. They like it. It's according to their nature. They continue to do that. Well, what about sheep, though? What happens when sheep get dirty, when they fall into mud? They try to get out of it as quickly as possible. Even if they purposely ran into it, they get out and say, they, they say no. We see this in our own life. When we purposefully and willfully sin, we reach the point where we are sorry, where we, we repent, and where we run back to our Father. And brothers and sisters have assurance in that. The guilt, the pain you feel when you sin that makes you run for forgiveness, the shame that you have for transgressing against one you love, that is itself evidence of a new life within you. You have a new awareness of sin. Even if you fall into it, you run from it. You confess it. This shows that you have new life. You aren't a pig content to roll around in the mud. You want to try to get out of it. And verse 18 provides us with the ultimate foundation for our assurance. It says, The one who has been born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. Well, who is this one who has been born of God? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who has been born of God, and the evil one cannot harm us because of that. This is our assurance. It's Jesus who keeps it safe. And then we have to ask, how many times does John have to say it before we believe it? Throughout his epistle, he's been saying, if you ask Christ to save you, then there is no doubt and no reason to doubt your salvation. Why? Because the devil and the whole world 
may seek to bring you back, to make you fall, but they can't reach you because they have to get through Almighty God first. Because we are in Jesus, and Jesus is a barrier to all of these threats. They can't get over that. It's a wall that can't be climbed. It can't be jumped over. It can't be tunneled under. That is who Jesus is to us. Because we are in him. That is our assurance. John continues to say that. And this moves to our fourth and final way of assurance. How can you be assured? Because of our awareness of God. We live in a hostile world, but we know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. How can we have confidence in light of the hostility of this world, the prowling devil, and even our own repeated failures? These are the things that continue to weigh on us and burden us. Well, I ask you, did Jesus, the eternal divine Son of God, come into the world? Did he assume human flesh to bear sins? Did he bear God's wrath on our behalf? Did he come to bring his people eternal life? And we would say, yes. Yes, he did. Well, then I would say, do you see the evidence of that life within you? Do you have faith? Do you strive to obey God's commands even though you fail? Do you try to love your neighbor? Do you confess only Christ? If you say yes to all this, then John says in verse 13, he says it to you, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let that sink in. John is writing these things to you so that you know you have eternal life. Throughout the past five weeks, we have seen all the ways John has tried to provide assurance for God's people. He has shown us the historical reality of Jesus, that he came in the flesh, he was our Savior, he did these things. He's shown that the Spirit dwells within us, that we bear the family resemblance of God. He has even showed us that God so loved the world that he sent his Son. Now, we don't just want to say, God so loved the world. Yeah, he, yeah definitely. And think of it as if we're separated from that. It's, it's out there. God so loved the world. This is true for you. What it means is God so loved you that he sent his son. Who's the world that he's describing here? God so loved the world. It's his people. And so he sent his son to die for us. He has given us the Holy Spirit, access to him in prayer, all of these ways to give us assurance. And finally, At the end of this chapter, in verse 20, we read, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Wow. Wow. Just think about that. Why are you assured Because you are in Jesus Christ himself. For those who exercise true faith, I don't even care what you think of yourself as. Because as far as Almighty God is concerned, you are so loved that you have been united to your Savior in the closest relationship that is possible. So we see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. 
for those who put their faith in God. A rejection of them on Judgment Day is tantamount to a rejection of Jesus Christ himself. Where's our assurance? It's that on Judgment Day, if we're not accepted, it means Jesus wasn't accepted. And where is Jesus right now? He's dwelling at the right hand of the Father already in heaven. And we're united to him. That's our assurance. When we believe in Jesus, we are already with him in heaven in that sense. We have already passed the judgment. We made it. We have assurance not because of anything we've done, but because of everything Jesus has done. It's because of the worthiness and faithfulness of Christ. John says, Jesus says in John 10 that he is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He laid down his life for them and he will not lose any of them. Any of them. So then let me ask the question. Would Jesus come to this earth and go through a living hell on this earth to then let his own be rejected? To abandon those who have faith in him? And the answer is no. Children of God, you are known by name. Your name is already written in the book of life. It's already there and God doesn't make oversight. It's there and you have access. This is our assurance. This is what 1 John is about. Do you see the confidence and the boldness that this gives us? We have no fear. Death itself doesn't separate from Christ. It brings us to him. And then we ask, so how does John leave us? How does he end? Verse 21 says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It's kind of startling. It's kind of, why is that there? Well, John isn't saying to be in doubt. He's not leaving us with a word of doubt. He's saying, in other words, stay true. Don't turn. Because of what's true for you, don't go after idols. We have a, our assurance gives us strength to follow God's will, to be obedient. We receive that strength from our, our assurance. And as we leave here, as we leave this epistle, we go with this confidence. God had John write these things so that us, his little children, would know we have eternal life. That's how we leave here. We have eternal life, and we know it. And that's what makes us obey. That's what makes us love. Because of the glory of our Savior. What a wonderful epistle. What a wonderful Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you again. We thank you for we see your love for us. We see it just spilling out of your word, pouring over us that you want us to be assured, that you want us to be assured that we have eternal life, that we are in you and that no matter what happens, that can't change. For those of us who exercise a true faith, we will never be rejected. And we thank you for this and we pray that it would cause us to have more faith, 
more obedience and more love for you and for our neighbor. And that John's goal in writing would be true for us as well. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.